welcome to Foreign Correspondence, a podcast that brings you interviews with journalists around the world. I'm Jake Spring, a foreign correspondent with nine years' experience in Brazil and China. This week, I bring you another podcast first, our first sports journalist. I spoke to Tim Cato, a staff writer covering the Mavericks NBA team in Dallas, Texas. I really can't believe I didn't think to interview a sports journalist earlier. As I tell Tim in the interview, the idea only occurred to me during the pandemic when watching the Last Dance documentary series about Michael Jordan. I saw journalists waiting around in the hall to talk to Jordan and just thought, I wonder what that's like. Tim definitely delivered, and I think you'll come away with a real sense of what it's like to track a team from week to week. Tim is extremely candid about how covering the Mavericks has essentially eradicated his fandom for basketball and most sports. He's just seen too much about how the sausage gets made to still get emotionally invested in who wins and loses. There are larger forces at work. He loves his job in the same way a congressional reporter would. There's a thrill in finding new stories, but like do congressional reporters sit and watch C-SPAN for fun when they're not working? I would guess not. Tim has really thought critically about how sports get covered and the all-too-common tropes it falls into. While he's not a foreign correspondent, he also talks about traveling to Slovenia to do a profile of a star player for the Mavericks. It's a brilliant piece of travel and sports journalism, and it was great to hear the story behind the story. Now, before the interview, I have to say we have reached the end of another year. Like last year, I'll be going on hiatus for the month of December as I recharge and look ahead to next season. This has been a really amazing year for the podcast. I published a whopping 24 episodes with journalists on six different continents and 15 different countries. Somehow, I really don't know how sometimes, I manage to do it consistently every two weeks. Our listenership has really taken off, and you might have seen that a couple months back we hit the 10,000 download mark. I really can't say thank you enough for listening, nor to my guests for agreeing to be on the podcast. I'm excited looking ahead to next year and hopefully can bring you many more journalists in new geographies, mediums, and publications. The next episode will air in January, and I already have an episode recorded, so rest assured that I'll definitely be returning. I have a wish list of countries and a few other things that I'm looking for in interviews, but if there's anything in particular, a person, a type of journalism, a certain country you would really like to hear about on the podcast, please let me know. Email me at foreignpod at gmail.com, find me on Twitter on the account at foreignpod, or leave a comment on facebook.com slash foreignpod. I'll also be featuring some of our back catalog on Facebook and Twitter in the weeks to come. Look for that. Thanks again for all the support. So without further ado, here's my interview with Tim Cato, a staff writer at The Athletic in Dallas, Texas. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast, Tim. I'm glad to be here. I'm glad to have a conversation about journalism, something we don't get as many chances to do in the past six months. Yeah, no kidding. So first, if you could set the scene for us, tell us where you are geographically and the physical space around you, what time it is, and a little bit about what the past week or so of work has been like. It's 518 here. I'm in downtown Dallas in a studio apartment, loft-style apartment maybe. I'm at a desk that I ordered about four months ago, and it came in two weeks ago. So very fortunate that the home office rush has finally abated. The last week, you know, things are obviously very different. I cover sports. I have not had the need to go out and report on anything in person. Nothing that I do rises to that level of seriousness, I don't think. It's been a lot of phone calls and phone interviews and 
back a couple months ago, uh, Zoom press conferences, although those have not been a thing of, of the recent weeks. So it's been an adjustment. So if you listen to one before, you'll know we like to find out how you got to where you are today. And we start way, way back at the beginning, which is if you could first tell us where you were born, a little bit about what growing up was like in your family situation, your early school years, and if you started to show an interest in journalism early on. Yeah, I'm a pretty average Texan suburbs kid. My mom was a teacher that quickly became a stay-at-home mom. My dad is in computer engineering of some sort. So journalism was never something I had any familiarity with early on growing up. I think the one thing that really did lend to my career, looking back, was that I was always familiar and active using computers and being online. I had a computer in my room maybe when I was eight or nine and freedom to use it quite a bit. And originally it was just more games than otherwise. But certainly as I got into my teenage years, I was very active on the internet. I grew up on the internet, one might say. And I think that had a very massive impact on my life. I feel like I matured late in life. I didn't really start being self-aware of the world around me until maybe halfway through high school. And I knew then that I liked sports. It was something I paid a lot of attention to, had been pretty important. I'd always been told I was good at writing and even, you know, try to quote unquote write for fun, which I think there's still old Word documents somewhere in a folder that, you know, have like an embarrassing attempt at the Lord (laughs) of the Rings sequel, you know, written by a 10 year old version of me. (laughs) Obviously I made it all of maybe 15 pages. It was that type of stuff that I attempted. And, and, you know, so I think not really knowing what I wanted to do in high school and seeing sports as something I really enjoyed. One of the things that resonated in my life then, and knowing that I'd been told that I was good at writing, I saw sports journalism as a avenue into essentially getting paid to go to sports games. And in my 17-year-old brain, I thought that just made perfect sense. So I really chose this major without any understanding of the workings of journalism or truly even what it was. And you said Texas suburbs, but was it in Dallas where you are now, just outside of there? It was. It was Plano, which is a suburb. I think the third or fourth largest suburb in the Dallas area. And then right before high school, between middle school and high school, my dad was transferred down to the Austin suburbs. So I spent four years there as well. Cool. And just out of curiosity, were you a Dallas Mavericks fan as a kid? I was. I found them. My dad was not a fan. He was a big football fan, but never really watched or you know even talked about basketball. But I think at some point in middle school, I, I found it. Basketball was a sport I wanted to start playing. And I guess it just naturally, it allowed me to kind of latch on to the local team. So I actually remember a lot of (laughs) less than legal streams as we moved out of market and had blacked out games. And I would be watching these grainy video streams in 2011, just trying to keep up with this team that I enjoyed. And did you play much sports? Like I'm a big sports fan, but I never really played sports. Did you used to play basketball or other sports? I did. I, I went to private schools throughout my childhood, all the way up until college. So it wasn't hard to make a team. So I did play on our school teams. I was not particularly good. It was far, far, far from being something that would continue into college other than just out of enjoyment and physical activity, which I did continue to play plenty. But it was an activity more than a pursuit, I guess, if you will. I'm certainly not an athlete. 
Sure. More than me, though. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So d- did you then apply to college with the idea that you would study journalism and go into sports journalism? Like a lot of colleges, Northwestern, where I went, Mizzou, you apply there, you apply to these journalism schools. Is that how it worked for you? Or did you go and figure it out after you got there? I ended up going to the University of North Texas, which is, again, about 45 minutes outside of Dallas and Denton, Texas. There's two driving forces there. The first is that I made an agreement with my parents that I would go to an in-state public university. And the second was that this is really, I guess, the start of my professional career as well. I had started writing online about sports just in message boards, just at the most base level where I would just comment on forums and say what I thought about the Mavericks. And I think this next step is I latched onto a site called Mavs Moneyball, a blog. I'm just writing for free. It was part of SB Nation, which later became one of the founding sites for Vox Media. But at the time, this was a very tiny thing. I was not getting paid. I was just writing thoughts of a young fan who saw that as being something that he enjoyed. You know, at the time I enjoyed doing as a pastime, that I was doing it in other formats. Why not do it in a slightly more professional manner? But the way to get involved in that was I just emailed whoever was running it at the time. It was not an official thing by any means. But after doing that for, I guess, a year, most of my senior year, I realized that the site had just the amount of professional respect that I could go to the Dallas area and actually go to games as a credentialed media member through this website, through this blog. Uh And yeah, so not really understanding journalism or viewing it as something that I was pursuing as much as just sports itself. It made a lot of sense to move back and go to the college in the Dallas area that would then enable me to actually drive down and attend games, which I did starting my freshman year. I probably drove down to, you know, maybe 10 home games or something like that, maybe 15 with a season credential, which is really wild looking back that they would look at an 18-year-old in college who is very socially awkward, very much just trying to understand the world and say, yeah, here's a season credential. Here's your access to every Mavericks home game that you want to come down to. But yeah, that's really where the whole professional career, I guess, started was probably my senior year of high school getting involved with that blog, Mavs Moneyball. Wow. Yeah, that's quite a way to get involved in being an 18-year-old doing journalism that's probably not that far removed from people who are covering it full-time professionally. I did want to ask, like, I know a lot of sports journalists got their start at SB Nation, and I've always been a bit confused about what does SB stand for? What was with all these different blogs? What was it? If you can just describe it a little bit to me. It's a very hard website and blog network to put into context because I have a lot of feelings on both ends of the spectrum about it, certainly looking back even more so that way. I want to say it started probably 2005. It started as a blog and then it turned into 30 blogs and then it turned into more than 200 as they started covering all major teams in all the major sports leagues in North America. So Mavs Moneyball was a cog in this blog network machine. And eventually SB Nation itself, which I believe stands for Sports Blog Nation. So uh, okay. so pretty, pretty simple there. It's unfortunately not a more fun reveal than that. But SB Nation itself launched a national site, I want to say in 2010. And it really developed into this place for weird internet blog culture had a very Deadspin Gawker vibe, maybe without the edge, certainly without quite as much cursing. But it did, you know, really promote the weirdness. 
the national site, to some degree, leaned on the blogs underneath as maybe almost a feeder system, both to hire full-time employees in some cases and to promote content from these blogs. And the dirty underbelly is that these blogs were largely made up of unpaid contributors. And even the paid contributors, largely the site managers, were making 100 200 a month. I became Mavs Moneyball site manager as a sophomore in college. And <laughs> I, I believe I made 100 $100 with two incentives that were $100 each. And I hit those incentives maybe once every three months. So, you know, it wasn't a lot of money for something that I was investing. By my sophomore year, I was investing probably 10 to 20 hours a week in this site, maybe more than that. Sometimes when you count games that I drove to and the hour that I drove down and back up, when you really do the math, I was certainly making a very small amount. And I was working with these unpaid contributors that were doing this just because they were passionate and just because they cared and wanted an outlet, wanted a voice. So there's a lot of issues with the way the labor was solicited from these blog networks and knowing that a large portion of the ad revenue that Vox Media, even after launching verticals like, like Vox, the namesake, and the Verge was around during then, and Recode was acquired at a later point. You know, all these sites, a large portion of their ad revenue still came from this network of 200, 300 blogs that were largely staffed with unpaid contributors. At the same time, I can't assign so much of the credit for my career to this unpaid blog. It just gave me this opportunity. I don't think that if I had just started a blog myself, I would have had the sway to get media credentials and to start going to games. So it's hard to accurately portray the nuance or the, like I said, you know, just these emotions I have on both ends of the spectrum towards this place that absolutely gave me my start and, and eventually led to my first full-time job, but also certainly exploited label, labor of, of people who were willing to write about teams they loved as a hobby out of passion. Certainly, some of it is more defensible than others. The 45-year-old who just wants an outlet is different than the 20-year-old who is being asked and encouraged to work more and more hours each week with hopes of a full-time job, so with hopes to break into the industry. So that's the complex espionation history, and I feel like I'm just brushing the surface. But it was a very strange, interesting place and very befitting of what the internet was from probably 2010 to 2015. Yeah, that's super interesting. And what were you studying in school at the same time? I went for journalism. I did. I was in the journalism program. As others have said, I think on this podcast from the episodes I've listened, I, I don't think I learned too much from the classes themselves. But I did start at the student newspaper my very first semester, actually, and was very fortunate by my second semester. I was a paid writer on the sports staff. The following semester, I was the sports editor. Again, it does show you how bare bones this journalism program was that as my third semester at, as a 19-year-old, I was an editor. I say that everything I learned about journalism in college came through managing that blog and at the student newspaper itself. So I ended up doing five semesters. And at that time, I had started freelancing for the local paper covering high school football. I had an internship at the Dallas Morning News. And then I was really just trying to make this blog more and more professional, attend more games, try to be a actual media member in the locker room, not just someone who hung around and could barely believe that they were five feet away from Dirk Nowitzki like I was as a freshman, like I was during those first games that I went to. It sounds like you were hustling a lot, like you're doing all of these things at the same time, school, the student paper, SB Nation blog, freelancing. I was someone who needed deadlines to keep pushing myself forwards. And so... 
just constantly throwing myself into things. And of course, journalism being a deadline industry, I think was really good for me. I, it's wild to think about how much I was actually doing compared to now when I spend an entire afternoon and feel like I can barely send three emails. <laughs> so when do things come to a head with SB Nation in terms of it maybe being more exploitative than opportunity? Take so, me to the next critical juncture, I guess. So I start managing the blog my sophomore year. And I do a couple more semesters of the student newspaper. My junior year, when I stop working at the student newspaper, I'm trying to work more full-time or more seriously at Maz Moneyball, the blog, doing some freelance hustles, some, some things like that. But that's also the year that SB Nation offers me a part-time role at their national site. They were doing something called, I think, a news desk, fairly common, understandable journalism yeah. thing. And, and they had deskers. They had these part-timers. I think there were six of us. We worked initially maybe two six-hour shifts a week. And most of us, I think, were younger journalists you know, who aspired to actually make it into the industry. So I probably made $10 an hour. I don't remember for sure. But it was the first opening into a national publication because it was a step up from just doing a sports blog, a fan blog. And it was a step into a national website that did real serious journalism. I wasn't doing that so much. I was writing about injuries and doing recaps that we'd publish the next morning with special headlines that were supposed to generate the most Google search traffic. But it was a job. It was an actual job and an actual journalism institution, I suppose, that actually had sway with their name. And so for the rest of college, really, I was really focused both into Maz Moneyball, into the blog, because I had more freedom to do what I wanted there, to pursue stranger, more difficult journalism stories, just truly as much for the sake of the site as for myself, so that I could challenge myself and try new things and try different types of feature writing and things like that. And then I was working part-time and I had one toe in the door and I had hopes without really anything else on my radar. So much of what I had done up to that point was online internet focused that it was very hard to conceive of, you know, me going the traditional route where, you know, I got involved with a small newspaper that led to a mid-sized newspaper that led to a large newspaper. That route had, first of all, mostly disappeared. I graduated in December of 2015. So back then, that route was disappearing and all these strange, unique internet pathways were appearing. And I saw SB Nation as my chance to do that. And so when I did graduate December 15, they told me they liked me. They told me at some point in the future, they'd love to bring me on full time. And so 11 months later, the following November, November 2016, almost a full year after I graduated, they actually finally morphed this part-time role as a news desk person into a full-time role. And that's my first full-time journalism gig. Most of the people I went to school with at Northwestern, like the really straight-edge journalism kids, was like every summer they'd have an internship and they'd kind of get out of school and they'd have four internships. I mean, I wasn't like that. But still, you got out of school and all you had under your belt was internships. And it seems like you're already getting paid in a semi-professional fashion that already seems more advanced than going out and getting an internship. You know, hopefully this isn't pride or anything like that. But I was in on the professional level. I had at that point a slight following covering the Mavericks, a professional sports team. I think it would have been really hard for me to go backwards. And obviously it did work out. My gamble did work for me. It certainly, I'm very self-aware that another timeline without SB Nation being there, without another path into journalism 
I think I really would have struggled. I have no clue if I still would be in journalism right now. But that was the path I think I needed, both for my skill set, both as someone who really had grown up on the internet and understood on a level what internet and blogging and online journalism should look like way more than I understood what traditional journalism or building a beat and building sources and filing on deadline and writing an AP style. All of that stuff took much longer, you know, in some ways I'm still, you know, I still think I would, you know, if you threw me on the New York Times today, I would probably flounder a bit, quite a bit, I'm sure. I don't think that's where my skill set is or has been ever fully pointed to, certainly not in a straight news sense. I've always been someone who wrote for sites that gave me the ability to use first person and voice opinions that were unmistakably my own opinion, not just a God voice saying this is what happened. And it would have been really hard for what I was doing in what that last year and a half in college. So much of what I was doing was slanted towards that. I didn't want to go to just covering high school sports. There might have been some pride in that and probably foolish pride because if this pathway hadn't been there for me, I really don't know if there was another one that was. But, you know, I think everybody right out of college thinks they're invincible. And this is a realization I've only had in recent years looking back that I was very, very fortunate that I had this website that was both suited to what I was good at, but also was still flexible enough to let me develop in other ways and, and to, as time went on, to do more real journalism. And, you know, I even remember I was still part-time. It was the spring of 2016, SB Nation paid for me to go to really cover three playoff series, if I remember right. And I was writing real journalism, real game stories with quotes from the locker room. And I was trying unique formats and styles. I just keep coming back to this point that I was very fortunate that this quirky pseudo internet blog existed. Even as I acknowledge that they absolutely exploited labor of many, many unpaid journalists, that I was certainly someone who benefited from this in the big picture because it gave me a platform and it let me, I guess, in some ways skip the line straight to covering an NBA team. Whereas had I been a sports journalist 20 years ago, that never would have been possible. It's really, really fascinating and wild looking back at this brief moment in time when the internet and journalism intersected and just smashed into each other like two tectonic plates or something. And that earthquake just caused complete chaos and I think allowed a lot of jobs to pop up out of nowhere. And I was very, very lucky and fortunate to take advantage of that. Yeah, that's great. That's pretty different from most of the people I've talked to's path. I can't imagine there was an office. That must be a bit (laughs) strange. Had you at this point not met most of the people you work with because it was all online? It was almost fully remote. They would fly us out once a year for company meetings. I guess the one thing I should bring up here is that the way that NBA media typically gets to know each other is every year in early July in Las Vegas, where they hold a summer league with all 30 teams and everybody's out there. So the one fortunate thing is I started going to that probably in 2015. I started paying my own way out there and it allowed me to meet a lot of people, including the person, Mike Prada, who eventually became my editor, including other people at SB Nation. Again, I was affiliated with them. It was long before they promised me the full-time job, which I think actually did happen in Vegas in 2016, although it took a few more months for it to actually go through. But I remember going out to these Vegas chances where the basketball on the court is the stakes are nothing. It doesn't matter what actually happens, but it's a chance for everybody to kind of collect in one place in just this massive conference of water cooler talk. And I was fortunate to meet a lot of people out there. 
when I was still in college and then just out of college. And yeah, just then take us to what the next major event was. For, you know, those three or four or five years, SB Nation was truly a great sports site. You know, it really stopped getting the funding and the care that it needed from Vox Media. And I think as of today is just about dead. Maybe employees, 10 full-time employees now, way down from the 60 or 70 that we must have had in the middle of the 2010s. So I was probably a year and a half into this full-time job at SB Nation. When I first heard of The Athletic, it started very small. I think the first city site launched in early 2017. And it was a fairly simple model. It was a model we talked about, me and other sports journalists, me and other coworkers at SB Nation talked about, what if somebody tried a paywall? Said, we're not doing ads. Ads is a bullshit model that does not lead to sustainable journalism. Let's do a paywall system. Let's hire the best people and, and let's see if we can get people to fund real journalism, quality journalism, and only quality journalism, you know, without needing to publish constant things for Google search traffic and for Facebook ad clicks and things like that. What if we did that? And so The Athletic did it starting, as I said, I think the start of 2017 was when they launched. And it was one city and maybe very quickly thereafter, two cities, Toronto and Cleveland. And it expanded to Chicago. And I think Detroit might've been in there. And then it just started moving fairly rapidly. So it was absolutely a place we talked about a lot. Anytime I talk to sports journalists, anytime I talk to people in the media workroom at the America Airlines Center while covering a Mavericks game, there was people maybe closer to my age who were invested in the success of an outlet like this. We did talk about it. And I remember even asking, like, I saw the inevitable rise and expansion of the athletic. I saw how they started expanding. I wondered if they moved to Dallas, whether I would be someone they targeted. In my head, it made sense in the sense that I did more internet-focused journalism and less traditional, you know, like I, I think that the beat writers at the time had a very traditional approach, whereas I was doing something a bit unique there. But it did happen rather suddenly. It must have been March of 2018 that I get a DM or a phone call from someone I know within the Dallas media market. My now editor, Or Morial, previously he was working for one of the TV stations, and he ran their sports website. He ran all of their online content. So I knew of him just through the local media landscape, not super well. But he came to me and was pitching this Mavericks beat job for me. And it really was the natural next step for me. I was getting more fed up with the hourly nature of my job at SB Nation, how I was doing. They were trusting me to do real and serious journalism, but they're also asking me to wake up at 8 p.m. and work till 4 p.m. or, you know, log in at 6 p.m. and work till 2 a.m. And it was hard to juggle both. And I think the early signs that SB Nation was not going to be valued by Vox Media were also starting to creep in. I remember my only real hesitation was that I had a quote-unquote national platform at SB Nation that I could write stories about anyone, about any team. Mm -hmm. And I wondered if it would be backtracking to go back to a singular beat to cover a single team. It was a silly concern. I'd never actually been on a beat and very quickly the Mavericks became a very good beat to be on. But yeah, it was a natural step. It is interesting. It does feel like everything in my professional life has gone one to the next with almost very little say in the matter for me. You know, when The Athletic came calling, I had thought about it a lot. I had said, is this the next step in my career? And 
part of me was resistant, but I did really know that it was a step I needed to take, that it was a step towards real, actual journalism, and fully that with a travel budget, with the ability to do more complex and nuanced stories. So yeah, I said yes. It wasn't that hard. It was made much easier when Vox Media declined to even attempt to match the salaries, not even halfway. So that is how The Athletic came calling. So it was only recently that I realized that I hadn't had any sports journalists on the show and I should really get somebody to come on. And what precipitated it was I was watching The Last Dance, the Michael Jordan documentary, whatever, eight, ten parts, I can't remember. But during the pandemic, it came out and I was looking at these journalists always standing outside the locker room, always interviewing him. And I was like, I wonder what that's like. I should be talking to somebody about that. So, so I don't know. I, I guess I do wonder, like, what the day-to-day is like outside the pandemic. Like, I mean, are you the type of guy who's spent hours standing outside in a hallway waiting to <laughs> jump some star? You know, is it very casual? Like, what what is that experience like of reporting on locker rooms and reporting in and around the games? That's a great topic, and especially for this podcast. It's weird. It's a very strange dynamic we have access catered to us as sports journalists, which is relatively unique. Certainly White House correspondents have their assigned press conferences and their briefings. But I think to some extent, they're maybe encouraged to even be more antagonistic in those situations. And there is a lot of reporting that is understood to go on outside of those moments. Whereas a sports writer could just go to pressers. And I think historically, there are certainly examples of beat writers who would not push the envelope. And most of what they wrote was based off what was said in press conferences and what was said in open locker room settings that were very strictly defined. And this is when you could enter and there's a PR person depending on the team, depending on the strictness, present or loitering nearby, or or sometimes just in the room. So just to kind of walk you through a typical game that I would attend. In the morning, there's usually a shoot-around. The Mavericks have increasingly not held them, although I think the truth is they hold them voluntarily. And if they're voluntary, they don't have media responsibilities or they're not required by the league to hold media sessions. So often I'll go to the other teams and I'll find a player that I need to talk to for some bigger feature that I'm working on. Somebody maybe who was a former teammate of a now Maverick, you know, a beloved teammate. And I want to talk to this player. It's like, okay, what was it like being teammates? What's, what's the funny stories you have to tell? And you accelerate to the game itself, to the evening, and it's 105 minutes before the game, I believe, before the game tips off. There's a pregame press conference with the head coach. Then 90 minutes before, the opposing head coach does a press conference. And at 75 on the clock for a 30-minute time period, the locker rooms for both teams open. That's your pregame media availability, which sounds amazing. And it sounds like it would give you great access to players. In truth, if players are at home, they avoid the locker room during that 30 minutes. They don't want to talk to us. They talk to us enough. They don't want to get dragged down with questions. And... The road locker rooms are typically a bit more productive simply because the players often have nowhere else to go, especially just to use the American Airlines Center, the Dallas Arena. Uh, It is (laughs) quite cramped. Their options are the showers, the locker room, or the training room, or the court itself when they run out there and do pregame shooting. I absolutely think that some players specifically request the shooting time period to be during the open locker room period because they don't want to talk then. There are some players who say they will never talk during pregame. If you walk up to them and ask, they'll say, no, 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 I don't talk pregame. And then the PR person often will step in and it's like, he was available at shoot around. He was available this morning. It's not always the case, but it is the way that it's just understand to work. So 
if you ask me, there's too many media availabilities, which is, <laughs> it, which it's not the journalism answer I should have, but it's also, I guess my problem. And, and so I actually wrote a story about media questions and how players answer them and about the cliches we get. And I just find so many of the questions that are actually asked to be repetitive and just not insightful. And a lot of them are meant to be very single focused. A lot of people are looking for a soundbite to play on their radio show in their news ticker or to show on air to describe this player talking about this game that he was just in. But I want to look at this story. Hang on. So I wrote this story and I'll just read you. Hopefully this isn't too self-indulgent, but if I can just read you this paragraph, it's it was the morning before Barnes's, Harrison Barnes's season debut against the Toronto Raptors, and he was mostly asked about that, about how he feels. He responded, good. About what his biggest challenge will be, he responds, not forcing things. About how he fits into the team's revamped offense, he responds, my job is just being aggressive. <laughs> Whether he's excited to return, he responds, definitely. I'm just, you know, it's a lot of that. I'm certainly guilty of asking players, how did you feel when you did this thing? But if you ask them, how does it feel to return from injury? It's really hard to expect them to say anything interesting. What are they going to say? I'm glad I'm healthy. I'm glad I'm not injured. There is a lot of repetitive and to some extent simplistic questions that get asked and they get asked over and over again. And the way that the players combat this is absolutely cliches. I think I touched on cliches a little bit earlier, but there are a thousand cliches that are just synonymous with what sports writers do, with what athletes say in response to sports writer questions. In another paragraph in the story, this is why every team can succeed if it, quote unquote, starts on defense and, quote, a lot of guys step up after narrow victories. Coaches are proud of the way our team competed while players take their hats off to the other team because they've got some talented players. <laughs> Teammates always praise each other for putting the work in. Losing teams will watch some film and figure it out. After acknowledging that they missed some opportunities while on the court, we have to continue to work hard, someone will promise. And don't forget how important it is to have the right demeanor and to build continuity, or else the opponents might be more aggressive than we were, which can only come from within. I swear I hear this stuff, and I'm really glad. That was one of the most therapeutic stories to write, because I hear these same combinations of words repeated over and over again. And I want to be clear that I'm not necessarily faulting all journalists. I'm not faulting the players. I'm not really faulting anyone. The way that the sports narrative industry is driven is it's driven on constant new content and you need a new quote from players. And inevitably, when to some extent the players view a game, even a losing game, as a night at the office and they can't get too bummed, they can't get too down on themselves just because they had one bad result, Whereas there are these passionate fans who are hanging on every result. They're hanging on who wins and who loses. I do think that fans and players and media all have unique perspectives on what they're looking for from these interviews. But as I said, I don't use a lot of game quotes because the game quotes are always the same. And when somebody actually says something interesting, oftentimes they say it in a rambly way. And I'm like, I can paraphrase this. I have the freedom to do that. I think that is the freedom that we've had at The Athletic. And I guess the other thing I should mention in here is that players saying the wrong thing will so quickly get them in this public spotlight. And I know that there are players, I've seen it happen, where they were incredibly open and they're incredibly engaging. And their interviews you know, post-game scrums, as we call them, where you just kind of huddle around them in a locker room, were engaging. 
And then they get in, in a news headline and they get in this sports media narrative for 24 hours or 48 hours. They get on all the ESPN talk shows over something they said that was innocent or taken out of context. Or even maybe the quote was a little bit strong, but it gets blown up into a thing. And all of a sudden, they're getting asked more questions about an answer they gave. And then they're getting questions about the media narrative that has been built around this answer they gave. And all of a sudden, it might be three or four or five days until this all subsides. And I think a lot of players enjoy being asked interesting questions, especially that they've never heard before. But it just happens, especially in the settings that are provided to us by public relations. And again, it's not public relations fault by any means, but the settings were provided these scripted settings outside of asking a coach, why did you make the decision? What was actually supposed to happen? There are specific bits of information that are very important to glean, but just asking a player, how do you feel after this loss, after every loss is not going to get you a better result. The fifth time it's asked. And often it's a fifth different reporter, but it's the same wording in the same terminology and in the same situation. And these players are backed into a corner where they have nothing else to say except throw some cliches out there and nod their heads. And hopefully their scrum lasts for three minutes instead of six because they just really want to go to the bus, drive back to the hotel, go back to the plane, get to the next city, go home. It's the last thing they want to do is just regurgitate, describe to people how bad it was that they had a bad day at the office. So I do have a lot of human feelings towards the players and what we asked of them. The media acts as I value the most comes outside of these settings, outside of the press conferences, outside of these scrums. And while I have to be in a lot of them, I have to attend them. And sometimes I have no other choices but to ask them because individual one-on-one time with coaches and players is limited because there are so many reporters who cover professional sports. That is by far, far and away, where my most interesting quotes and content and stories and material comes from. And the more I can do that, the better. And certainly in in a pandemic times, it does make it quite a bit harder. Yeah. How do you get people outside of those prescribed moments? I've also wondered because like, you know, I'll I'll be out at a press conference or something and I'll sidle up to somebody, chat them up, try to get their phone number or something like that. Does that work with an NBA player? (laughs) Like how how do you get them or is it hanging out more in certain spots to catch them? Or am I asking you to reveal too much? No, no. I I think I can talk about this, at least in the bearish terms. I will say that NBA players are awful at returning text messages, just truly terrible. (laughs) So (laughs) I do have phone numbers for most of the Mavericks. I try to be very judicious when I actually reach out to players. I really want to feel like I'm reaching out for a specific purpose that they would appreciate. Often, I still get no reply. And Honestly, that's fine. I'm sure NBA players get a lot of text messages from a lot of different people. So, But in non-pandemic times, and I do think that a lot of what it is to be on a beat, to be on a sports beat, a team beat, is developing these relationships as players. When you kind of nod at them as, hey, man, can I get you for two minutes after a game? Maybe he's already talked for 10 minutes. Maybe he's already done a press conference. Maybe he's already done a scrum. Maybe he was interviewed on a camera on the court walking off. But if you build that relationship with him and you know you have a understanding that you're around the team a lot, which every city they go to, they see new faces and there's always people parachuting in, even in the home markets. When you're a beat writer, when you're around every day, a lot of why I show up to scrums and press conferences and go into the locker room, I feel like it's just to show my face, to say, hey, I'm here with you guys. I'm putting the time in. I'm here on the road with you guys as well. I'm traveling. In a way, I'm in this with you, even though I'm obviously not on your side per se. That's not what journalism is, but I'm 
going through similar things to you. When I need you for five minutes, do you have time for me? Will you make time for me? And generally, players are receptive to that. They understand, and I would like to believe, and I, certainly with some players this is the case, that when I do pull them aside to ask them questions, and I really make an effort to avoid the, okay, so how are you feeling? How are you feeling after this loss? I try to ask stuff that's more interesting or more unique or is about bilingualism or is about something that they're not usually asked about. And I do find those moments to be way more receptive. But it's hard. It's hard. It's a very saturated, perhaps oversaturated media market covering any professional North American sports league. And it's hard to find the moments inside and outside before and after games where you can sneak in just a few minutes with these players that have, especially the more famous they get, the, the more they have people asking for their time. Some of it is building a relationship with agents as well. Some of it is building relationships with team employees that can tell you stuff about the players that the players might not say. Some of it is building relationships with the PR people, and that's probably the easiest one. But, you know, they understand that if I need something and I need them to work with me, that they're going to do that because I am around this team so much and my job is fully focused on it as opposed to maybe a national TV reporter in a city they're just visiting. So it's complicated. It's, I could probably go on for another 30 minutes. I mean, one thing I do wonder about sports journalists is... For me, going to a sports game, watching a sports game, it's a time to check out. It's a time to focus on something that, in the grand scheme of life, does it matter who wins a sports game? No, it's just it's exciting for that individual moment and a way to relax. I imagine for you, you probably enjoy your job in the same way I enjoy my job. It's not necessarily... I don't know where I'm going with this, but it, <laughs> I know you're it, not, yeah. you, you don't enjoy it the way watching a sports game is enjoyable. And how, how has it changed your relationship to sports being a journalist? Like, would you sit down in your spare time and watch, I don't know, some random team play? Or is that now associated with work so you would do something else? That's the perfect way to ask this question. Probably it's time for me to kind of circle back. I did say that I grew up a Mavericks fan or I found Mavericks fandom and... I do not call myself a Mavericks fan now. I did for most of last decade when I was writing for Mavs Moneyball, when I was running that blog. It was a fan blog. Maybe I didn't say this back when we were talking about this, but you know, we were also encouraged to be fans. And it's, it's even as I tried to build up a professionalism where I wasn't screaming about the referees screwing the Mavericks out of this or that, I was still embracing fandom. And as I went to SB Nation and I got divorced from just covering the Mavericks, it did help me withdraw as a fan. It was still a team that I was perhaps more interested in watching than other teams, but it wasn't a team that my emotions really went up or down on. After a tough loss, I was not going to feel bad the next day. I couldn't. It wasn't something that made sense when it was my job, when it was something I cared about. I feel very fortunate that I became a full-time beat writer when I did. The 2018-19 NBA season was also Dirk Nowitzki's last season, a player who spent 21 years all at Dallas. I believe a record that's never been broken in terms of 21 seasons all with one team. He is one of the greatest players, but he's also just an incredible human, just exceedingly nice, exceedingly gracious, exceedingly humble. His humor is very self-deprecating, just to paint a picture of what he's like. And I have no problem saying this. He is my favorite athlete. And with his retirement, which happened in the spring of 2019, when that season ended, I think that's when my fandom, why I was fully able to retire it as well. So I feel very fortunate that I was able to write stories during that final season of his. In fact, the night of his final game, or I guess his final home game, 
what I wrote was very personal. It, it described my own journey as a fan. It described what Dirk meant to me, and it described what I felt being 50 feet away from him in my press seat on courtside, the scorer's table, watching this ceremony just to celebrate him. And my fandom has certainly been slipping. Like I said, I probably lost the emotional connectivity to sports and specifically to the Mavericks probably halfway through the decade. Around when I graduated college, it was really my emotional state didn't rise or fall. As I've become a beat writer and I've seen behind the scenes more often, peeked behind the curtain, I think that my fandom is even further receded or completely dissipated. I think that it's a probably a very natural reaction that when you see that this is all business, when you see how much it's driven by money and driven by shoe deals and driven by people in power and executives and agents, and it does really damage that magic that watching a favorite athlete can bring. So yeah, I do feel much more like I'm certainly not a fan. There are still times where I can turn on basketball games and enjoy them, but certainly attending a Mavericks game is a very different experience for me. It's not a chore, but it's not a choice I'm making. It is a job. It's me showing up and analyzing what I see, and I don't feel checked into every single moment of every single game. If you know I zone out for a quarter, it's not the end of the world. There's a lot of quarters. There's a lot of plays. There's a lot of minutes in an NBA season, so it has absolutely changed and warped my perception in a lot of different ways, and I do wonder what will happen in 10 years when I'm not full-time covering a sports league, a a sports team. I am curious if it comes back a little bit. I think I'll always probably be more rational than I was as a kid. The emotional ups and downs that drove me into sports journalism as it happens, I don't know if those were ever fully returned. I think I know too much. I think I know too much about you know <laughs> how, the, how the bacon is made. And it's one of those situations where it's hard not to see some things happen very cynically. Or, or, you know, maybe not even cynically. It's just the world runs around money and runs around certain people who are in certain positions in, in life. So I think that that's been an interesting thing. And certainly that's also a dynamic that I want to explore as I continue in my coming years on this NBA beat. I definitely have a desire to explore more about pyro dynamics and things like that. But yeah, that was a rambly answer, but it's been a very interesting journey as just this kid who loved watching his Dallas Mavericks in 2010 and they won a title in 2011. <laughs> And I thought nothing could be better. And 10 years later, my worldview and my mindset and specifically the way I view sports, it's so radically different that, you know, the 18-year-old, the 16-year-old version of me, he would be stunned at how things have turned. But I think that's a natural course for a lot of journalists and that we all develop a rather cynical viewpoint and worldview as time goes on. And I think that's important. (laughs) I think it begets good journalism when you do kind of think of the world that way. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. And I I take it you don't watch a lot of other sports like baseball, football. I was also a Cowboys fan and a Rangers fan. That's the football and baseball teams here in Dallas. I was a big fan of those growing up. I've really lost my fandom in them. I enjoy reading about them every once in a while just to feel like I'm up to date. But a lot of that is just me reading my colleagues, my coworkers. I will say I've weirdly got into soccer. And some of it is for the same reasons. There is only one sport that truly has an even more sprawling nature of economics, of influence, of fandom, of all these things. And I think in some small way that I have found the joy of sports fandom in certain places in soccer. And as I've gotten more into it, I think I've enjoyed that. It's almost a reminder of, oh, this is what my readers often feel like about things I'm describing. And I still think that I probably have a bit of a cynical view and rational and a almost a scientific approach to how I view even teams and players that I'm fans of. But it has been interesting. And I've thought 
you know, just my internal monologue. Why are you getting into soccer now? Why is this something that's so appealing to you? And if I had to psychoanalyze and give the reason, I think it is because the joy of sports, the joy that basketball brought me has faded. Not to say that I hate my job. Like you said, just like you do, I very much enjoy my job, but I enjoy it in a way that is very different than a fan watching his favorite team. Right. Do you have a specific soccer team you root for or anything like that? Or is it more general? Oh man, this is an admission. I've really got into tracking the U.S. men's national team and their players abroad. So I could not explain to you why this has happened per se. And in some ways I do feel it's very academic where I kind of wanted to take this worldview of a basketball journalist and apply it to another topic, to another field, to another subject matter. And in doing that, I'm a Dortmund fan of, of the German Bundesliga. They've had the best American and, and the next best American. Currently, you know, one of them went through, one of them is currently on the roster. So I think that's part of the reason. But yeah, it's been interesting. I find my own fandom and, or my own interest building in these teams and these leagues and these players very interesting to me myself. So <laughs> yeah, that's pretty interesting. Just two quick questions and then we'll move on to stories. They're both about Mark Cuban. Ooh. Because <laughs> I was thinking about, there are a couple things that are specifically interesting about the Dallas Mavericks. One is about how international they are. And I suspect we might get into that in the stories part, depending on what story you talk about. But, we will, uh, yeah. <laughs> okay, great, great. The other thing was Mark Cuban. He's probably the only sports owner that is notable in my mind, certainly in the NBA. I used to know the owner of the Bucks. He was a family friend, but since he sold the team, like, who is there besides Mark Cuban? I couldn't name another NBA team owner. And does that change the dynamic of your job? Is it different to have a team owner that's somehow interesting or who's also on Shark Tank and like does all this other stuff? Or... I don't know. I guess maybe I'm just fishing for a Mark Cuban story. I don't know if there's a question in there. I would venture to say that he is the most accessible billionaire in the world and maybe in history. <laughs> he is someone who I will not give away his email address, but it's out there. It's not that hard to find. You'll laugh if you actually see what it is, if somebody actually goes through the minor trouble of tracking it down. And he is someone who will, I, I will email. You know, most owners... We'll talk to the beat writers in very specific instances and circumstances. Most of them prefer more of a hands-off approach. And most general managers and front office employees prefer that as well from their owners. Stay out of our way. We'll do the talking. Don't say something that's going to get us in trouble or make us have to do damage control, PR control. Cuban obviously is not like that. He has always been extremely involved. And he is someone that if you email him, you are probably going to get a reply back in three hours, if not sooner. That has absolutely been the case with him. He is, <laughs> he is also someone that for any story I write, you know, if he is someone I need a comment from on a lot of things I do, which is very atypical of the sports owners. Again, they don't usually talk with the accessibility that that Cuban does, but he is very, very out there. So here's the story. Here's the one that you want to hear. Oh, great. So pregame locker room availability. I think I described it earlier that it's 30 minutes and... From the very first time I had a credential up until maybe three years ago when they redid the locker room and for various reasons, this thing went away. The locker room used to open up to the weight room that the players would use. And as it happens, Mark Cuban would use. He would use the Stairmaster and he would time it, I <laughs> believe on purpose, for that 30-minute period. And there was a, maybe at one point it was verbal or written, but 
by the time I showed up, there was just an unwritten understanding that if Cuban was on the Stairmaster, you got to go into the weight room, which normally would be off limits. We were confined typically to the locker room and journalists would just walk right back there and they'd walk around Cuban and he was up and down the Stairmaster, just up and down and for 20, 30 minutes. And this crowd of media reporters would just hold serve with him, ask him about anything. And I remember distinctly, he's on this stairs master. He's kind of towering over you. If you're fortunate, you're not in the range of his sweat falling on you. And we were entertaining him. Like, I truly believe that's how he viewed it. He viewed it as a way to make exercise more interesting. And there would be times where... Nobody would ask a question and it would just be silent for 30 minutes. And then somebody else would be like, oh, what do you think of this? What do you think of that? Sometimes it wasn't even about the Mavericks. Sometimes it wasn't even about basketball. Sometimes it was about what he thought of an economics thing or a politics thing. And certainly after leading up to Trump's election and after Trump's election, he got increasingly political. And I have a theory that he probably would have ran for president in 2020 and that this reduced availability was, you know, the end of these sessions was linked to it, but I don't really have any proof. But even when the Stairmaster media session went away, you could still almost always <laughs> grab him. He would sometimes come out on the court and shoot, and he would give one-on-one -on -one interviews to a fan blog. You know, an 18-year-old, a 19-year-old who probably looked like me back when I was 19-year-old and had a season credential, although these kids had way more confidence than I ever have. And full full credit to them. I hope that didn't come off as demeaning by any means. This is the same pathway that I undertook. And so I found that fascinating, how he remains just this person who is always willing to talk. Sometimes we'll give short answers. He isn't usually writing back paragraph after paragraph when I do email him. It's usually a few sentences, but he will always reply. And when I needed him earlier in the pandemic, for an hour for multiple different stories I was working on. He was like, hey, here's my secretary. Let's set something up. So a fascinating person. I have a lot more I could say about him, but I think that's definitely just the availability, the accessibility is unlike anything else in, I think, any professional sport. And that's a very interesting thing to cover up close. Yeah, that's amazing. He seems like a great source to deal with. I'll also that. throw out, just for fun, this sure. year was the first time I got an email from Cuban where the subject line was off the record. <laughs> he just wanted to rant about something and he wanted to rant directly to a journalist. So he's a truly a fascinating person to cover from both a journalistic sense, but also just to interact with as a human. Yeah, that's great. So I solicited some questions from a couple of friends who follow NBA closer than me. And then I realized most of them don't really fit for the format of this podcast. There was one that was just too funny not to ask, which one of my friends gave me was just, does Mark Cuban own the Scarface house? <laughs> I mean, would you rule it out? Actually, no, if he did, he would talk about it quite a bit. And trust me, as described, we talk to him a lot. I'm sure he would brag about it. My, <laughs> my guess is no. Cool, cool. Yeah, I think it came from some kind of sketchy Wikipedia article. Um, <laughs> but I guess let's forge on to the story section. So the first question I usually ask is if there's a story that got away, a story that you always wanted to do, but you weren't able to pull it off in the end. Does anything come to mind? I would say several come to mind. Usually instances where I tried to be too ambitious, where I wanted to turn something that could have been more simple into the definitive feature and look into the specific circumstance or something. I don't know if there's a specific example that's so interesting that I need to bring it up. The one thing I would mention, and we mentioned it a little bit earlier, is there are a lot about the power dynamics within the NBA. 
the people who actually cause things to happen that I would love to write about and that I hear people talk about on in off the record side conversations. But it's very hard to actually convince people to go on the record about a lot of these things. And so a couple specific ones that are in my head, maybe at some point I'll have an opportunity to write about them and fingers crossed I will. But just because everybody who knows about it is within this machine, is within this industry. And so just getting people to open up, unless it's five or 10 years in the past, definitely is a challenge. Cool. That's good. No need to pull out a specific thing. So if you could then pick a story you're proud of, tell me a little bit about what the story was about and then just the process of reporting and writing it start to finish. Yeah, I went to Slovenia. Luka Doncic, the soon-to-be next face of the NBA, somehow ended up in Dallas, actually about a month after I took the job. So I did not know that I was latching myself onto a team that would very quickly and maybe even more so in the coming years become one of the biggest storylines in the league when I joined The Athletic. It was a place I wanted to join for reasons even outside of that. So I've been fortunate at this team's rise. And the biggest reason behind that is this kid, Luka Doncic, who is 21 and already being awarded as a top five player in the league, which is just meteoric and incredible and ridiculous and, you know, all, all the adjectives. And so I went to Slovenia and that's his home country. It's a two million. It's Eastern, Central European, but was former Yugoslav. And I went there knowing that I was going to write a story that probably didn't include a Luka Doncic interview for a lot of reasons. I knew that it would be difficult to get him. He is not a person who enjoys doing media and his agent and the Mavericks PR and just everybody around him respect that and thus very much limit how much he actually speaks or how much they assign him out. But I looked at Slovenia and I looked at a country of 2 million and I thought, I don't need him to write a story about what he means to this country. That's a story I can write if I go over there. And so somehow I talked my editors into it. I had never even been to Europe. I've listened to one previous podcast with the New York Times visual director, or forget his title. but Yeah, director of cinematography, yeah. He's describing how he's lived 50 different places. And uh, <laughs> literally the first times I was ever out of the country were because of The Athletic, which sent me to Toronto and Mexico City and Slovenia. You know, I'm this kid without even knowledge of what it's like to be on a plane for 15 hours and to connect through Istanbul and all this stuff. But I would like to think I pulled it off. I went over there. It was, as I said, I did talk to people from his childhood about what he was like, about how he grew up. But I think the overarching narrative of the story that I really wanted to describe and present is this country of two million understands its place in the world. It understands that its way to get its existence out into the world is through its athletes. And because it is one of the richer countries in that region, it has actually been quite successful and had a lot of successful athletes, but perhaps none more than Luka Doncic. This is definitely very quickly becoming their most famous individual. I think he still probably needs a couple of years before he passes Melania Trump, but I'm sure he will. <laughs> I am confident he will very quickly do that. And most people I talk to in Slovenia would like that to happen. So that was the story I wrote. Yeah, I'd never been to Europe in any capacity, certainly not for a story. So it was as bold of something I've, I've attempted before and overwhelming at times, certainly. I'm fortunate to have two very good editors in Ormoyal and Mike Pellucci, my two local editors who are based in Dallas, who helped me throughout this entire process. That was the story that I think is thus far the one that most stands out to me, both for the experience itself, but also hopefully what came of it. So I did, I started to read it. I haven't finished it yet. And I really liked it. I liked how it was also a kind of great piece of 
travelogue, you know, travel journalism where you kind of tell the story as it happens. And I feel like I'm on the trip with you going to Slovenia because you kind of tell it that way. And I thought that was great. And I was, yeah, I was curious if you had been out of the country much because I've only really done parachute journalism maybe once. I showed up to China on a lark, but then I stayed there for years. I went to Myanmar for like nine days and just kind of figured it out, wrote some stories. That's the only time I've done it. And it is kind of a weird, disorienting experience going in completely cold, basically, when you try to plan as much as you can. And just reading the piece, I wasn't quite so sure. How much stuff did you have planned going in? Did you try to plan it down to like, I'm going to go from this interview to this interview to this interview? Or was it as, you know, it kind of feels loose and fun in the story. And I just wonder if it was actually that way or if it was more planned. It was planned. There were some interviews that materialized in Slovenia. There were some that I had started talking to people before I went, but didn't finalize things with them until I made it over there. Honestly, if I had to do it again, I would plan even more, which I agree. You know, I was definitely aiming for something that felt casual and didn't feel like I was just going stop to stop while accompanied by tour guides. And I don't think it was, but it's intimidating to just parachute somewhere, like you said, and say, all right, I am now telling the story of what this place is. And this is my experiences of a place that I've been in for five days. I got, I think, four and a half days in Slovenia. And that's obviously not enough to really, truly understand a place. And at the same time, I had to share those to some degree. And so I tried to stick to things that were also communicated to me by people I talked to and people I interviewed. And I guess the one and the first person, the first Slovenian I brought up and the first anecdote in the story was a Slovenian I befriended because he sat next to me on the plane. And I think that did set a good tone for the story that I was immediately able to bring in somebody totally unplanned. And in the story, I told this guy, oh yeah, I'm meeting this person and this person the following day in Slovenia in the capital in Ljubljana. And he immediately went to Facebook and my thought is, oh, wow, you know these people? And he's like, no, 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 but I'm sure I know somebody who knows them. And that was the moment that I was struck by how small Slovenia was and, and why Luca was such a big deal. And so that was the lead of the story and I think uh, really, really helped push the rest of the story forwards. Yeah, it was a great piece. I will finish it. Uh, <laughs> but uh, congrats on it. It's a, a good story and I presume reaction was pretty good. Yes, yes. Uh, okay, well then, I guess we'll next press on to the lightning round. Do you feel ready? I feel ready. What is a must-read publication for work that you look at almost every day? It's ESPN. They're still the newsleader, specifically within basketball, and they mm-hmm. break the most, and they have the most context of probably five to seven journalists who are just as embedded within the league as anybody. So and a podcast here and there. That's that's how I keep up with what's happening in my own sports league, just for my own sake. And then what is a journalistic publication you read, listen to, or watch, so whatever medium, just for fun? My answer is going to be exceedingly local. D Magazine is kind of an alt-weekly, my favorite local Dallas publication. does stuff most to the tone of writing that I aspire to do and the worldview slant in some ways as well that I probably hold as well, or at least closer to it than a lot of mainstream publications. And as much as I've mentioned, maybe I won't be doing sports writing forever. And I think that's true. I'm not 
foolish enough to try to say what I will be doing in five years or 10 years or 15 years, not with the way that journalism is progressing. I do think that a hyper-local kind of alt-weekly style magazine, if such a thing ever exists in 15 years, I think I would really enjoy something like that. Just feeling like it's not a enterprise role where you're dropping in here and there and somewhere else. You really invest in a single community. You invest in it in ways that you can write long features about the reverends who are supporting activist groups and you can talk about city council politics, but you can also throw events where you bring together a lot of local bar and restaurant scene people and sell tickets for it and have a good time. And it's just that that nice mix of feeling like you're making an impact locally and feeling like you're making an impact on a community that is small enough that you can actually just, you're informing people and you're doing it in a valuable way. And so that is something I'm definitely drawn to. And I really enjoy almost all the work they do, whether it's telling me the best tacos in Dallas or doing very detailed work and features into just what is wrong with the city and the city government and the politicians who run it. Good to shout out at a local publication. Next up is what is the best journalistic article piece or whatever medium that you've consumed lately? So I'm going to go slightly local here again. Texas Monthly is just as the magazine is my Dallas, you know, Texas Monthly is the Texas themed magazine that I most identify with both as a writer and just a person in a Texan. And a recent hire of theirs who I've tracked for a while, his name is Chris Hooks, wrote a story called What If They Held an Election and Everyone Came? And it's a story about Texas's long, two decades long process of making it very difficult to register to vote and to vote itself. And it hits all the notes that I would want a story like that to hit, where it talks about how it started, goes into specific policies that caused it to be the way it is. It talks about ways that Democrats have tried to combat it. And it's just a very detailed story. This writer has a very unique tone, you know, just kind of a funny with cultural references, not a tone actually I aspire to bring to my own writing, but a tone that works and really just sets the scene for him. And I'm just recalling this lead off the top of my head, but I think it's good enough to mention. He writes something like, if the health of a democracy can be measured by how many people vote, then Texas has lupus. It just kind of, it just immediately, you're like, oh man, you know, we're about to talk about why Texas is wrong or what has gone wrong in Texas to cause all these things. As much as it both goes big picture, it also goes small picture and talks about how the, I want to say one of the state organizations, maybe the state attorney's office, raided a PAC that encouraged voting was a voting registration group raided their offices, took everything on the pretenses of election fraud or something like that. And six months later, they dropped all charges. Nobody was ever charged. Nobody even went to trial for this, but it completely crippled an activism group in the state. So the way that he balances both history and big picture and small picture and picks very specific pointed examples to be like, here's the anecdote that shows this. Here's the stat that shows this. Here's the thing 20 years ago that shows this. I thought he did an exceptional job. And so that's definitely the one that jumps to mind. Cool. Yeah, that sounds like a great piece. And then how do you manage your work-life balance, or do you even believe in it? I mean, to some extent, we're journalists. We know we don't have that. Um, (laughs) I've tried to be better at keeping a 9-to-5, loosely a 9-to-5. I I love that I have the freedom, but if I can start working, it's not usually by 9, but by 10, by 10.30. And if I can be wrapping up by 5 or 5.30, I just think that it helps me build healthier and more 
consistent and productive routines. It's not always possible. Obviously, the job that I cover often has sports games, and those start at 6 or 7 or 8, and I'm writing into the evening. So on days like that, you know, especially on weekdays where that happens, I try to let myself have more of a weekend-style day before I work the entire evening. But it's a constantly evolving process for me, and I think I am a long way away from reaching the finish line of how to successfully juggle everything that comes with both this job and just kind of the way it works. But step by step, I feel like I've got better, and that's really all you can ask, right? Right. When I get off this podcast, I have an article to finish up. So certainly my my (laughs) 9 to 5 aspirations are not perfect. (laughs) That's funny. And then is Twitter important to you? Unfortunately, yes. I think you get that answer a lot, don't you? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I have maybe five accounts on text alerts and... Those are the main newsbreakers in the league. And while theoretically I will find out from an editor or a Slack notification or something, if something were to happen, it's really my job to be instantly available if something happens, newsy, you know, breaking news happens that affects my team directly. And I can reliably count on these four or five accounts that I have on text notifications to, if something of such importance that I would need to be on call and available then I suspect that news is going to filter through one of their feeds and thus my phone. And then if you had to trade places with one journalist, living or dead, and you would have their career, who would it be? I cannot do one. I don't think there's a single person who most personifies what I'm looking for or what I would hope to be, partially because I think that I would love my career as it proceeds to contain lots of different pursuits and interests and things like that. But just maybe two people that come to mind. Jane Meyer at The New Yorker does some of the best and and most important, most damning journalism I've ever seen. Her book, Dark Money, about the Koch brothers and the money they funneled into politics was wild. And just the, kind of like I was saying before, the way that she jumped between anecdote and stats and big picture perspectives and overviews of what was happening to really argue successfully what was actually happening was was incredible. Baxter Holmes at ESPN, basically, as I understand his job, which maybe he would push back and say it's a little more complicated. I'm sure he would. But um, the way I understand his job is he just kind of floats around doing like four to six huge feature stories a year, you know, mostly about the NBA. Really, he's allowed to choose whatever he wants and maybe has as much time as he wants to just really run wild. And often it's about wine or coffee or the dinners that Greg Popovich, the Spurs head coach, would take his players to and how Popovich demanded that it was only six people at a dinner because six people is the ideal conversation limit. That quote, that anecdote still sticks in my head from a story he published two years ago. So he seems like he has a whole lot of fun. And then maybe Sam Anderson, who's at New York Times Magazine, incredible writer. I read a book of his, Boomtown, which was about basketball and was about the Oklahoma City basketball team, but also almost using them as a tool to explore this truly batshit insane history of Oklahoma, the state. And he's just an incredible writer and reporter just based off how much work he put into this book, Boomtown. Really blew me away. It might seem like a sports book. It's really not. I think every single person who cares anything about American history would definitely enjoy it. Cool. Those are all three good shout outs. And then what do you bring to the table that makes you a good journalist? Some people on Twitter would say not a lot. That's one one fun thing about that medium. No, I kid. I've always been a writer first and a reporter second. A lot of times writing has covered over my reporting deficits. So that's definitely something I've tried to balance out. 
but I have many, many more steps I want to go as a writer. If, if I had to say one thing, I would like to think that I think very out of the box about story ideas. And I'm always trying to really examine, all right, this thing is associated loosely with sports, with basketball, with my beat. Is there a story there? And I try to do that as much as possible. And in doing that, I've written some of my favorite stories whatsoever. And there's a lot of examples, but just to bring it back to the one mentioned previously, the one about media questions, I'm proud to realize that there was a full story there. And there was, it's a story I really like writing, but it's also a story that was so ingrained in my day-to-day life, my day-to-day job as a beat reporter in everybody's life. You know, anybody could have written it. And fortunately I, I really stepped back and I try to do it. It's a conscious act of effort to step back and say, what am I overlooking that's right in front of me? And that was just one example of something that I think was staring me right in the face and turned out to be fascinating in a lot of ways. You know, hopefully just the self-awareness and the self-consciousness of both the environments I'm in and just me as a writer is really, I think, the thing that I am most proud of and most try to bring to everything I do. And then what is one thing you wish you could travel back in time and tell your younger self? I hate to be yet another journalist who says this, but I might tell my younger self not to go to journalism school. I don't regret doing it per se, But I think, as we mentioned way back when, when we were talking about my biography, it wasn't something that I ever felt that engaged with or creatively stimulated by, that maybe being an English major, maybe majoring in something that I could learn and then take into journalism as I learned how to do journalism through the student newspaper and all the other extracurricular jobs and outlets that I was working for at the time. I do wonder if that might have been the smarter choice. It's not something that I dwell on too much now. I think journalism school was fine for what it was, and I very much understand the difference between slander and libel. But but I would say that overall, everything I learned in journalism was outside of the classroom. And I don't know if that's a failing of journalism classes or just a inherent factor of the industry itself. But maybe if I had one thing to go back and say, it, it would be that. And then what is one thing that most people don't know about you? I think one thing I've realized about myself is that I've always had ADD or some ADD tendencies that I think I talked earlier about needing deadlines to really push me forwards. I think in some ways, you know, out of all the fortunate things that happened to me to end up in journalism today, unfortunately, I ended up in an industry with deadlines because that was always something that I was always the person working right up to the end of them. So I finally decided to try some mild medication for that type of stuff. And I think that's a it's just interesting looking back at seven years, even longer than that, and how I managed a fairly common mental block or however you would like to define it and still ended up where I am. So that's probably a thing that uh, is not well known by anyone who isn't in the close circle. Although certainly as I'm sharing it on a podcast, not something I mind sharing at all. Yeah, that's great that you figured that out after seven years is quite a while, but... It's still figuring it out in some ways, I would say, but certainly I think as I turned 27 this year, it's a way more complete understanding of how to cope with things like that than I probably ever had. Cool. That's great. What is your favorite film, book, TV, or other media property about journalists and why? The only other journalism podcast I subscribe to and listen to is called Two Writers Slinging Yang by Jeff Perlman, who is a multiple-time book author, largely in sports, but he brings on guests in all forms of writing, as far as hip-hop producers or hip-hop lyricists and poets. And 
there's times where the podcast occasionally annoys me, but overall, I think Jeff does a really good job really digging down to the nuances of, okay, this is what journalism is. This is what your life is. Less biographical, perhaps, than this one, and more like, how did you do this story? Walk me through, let's spend 20 minutes just talking about a specific story that you wrote. So as someone who is always seeking out more journalism conversations to have, I'm glad to have another podcast to add to the one I just mentioned, because I think this one serves a slightly different and equally important role in how you go about interviewing people. But I've also enjoyed this one called Two Writers Sling and Yang. Yang with a Y. Don't ask me how he came up with that title. I guess that's Sling and talk. Yang? Sl- slingin'. Slingin' with a... Uh, Oh, Sling and Yang. Yeah, okay. Sling and Yang. Yeah. I suppose that, you know, he's like a 45, I hope he never listens to this and I didn't butcher that, but I'd say he's like a, a 42, 45 year old. Perhaps this is some vernacular that just never reached it to me, but he's definitely an established and interesting journalist. And I think that the micro focus that he has on writing methods is pretty interesting with that podcast of his. Cool. Yeah. I've not heard of it. I'll look it up. And then the last question is, qualifications aside, if you couldn't be a journalist, what job would you do? Dude, I have no clue. (laughs) I mean, qualifications (laughs) aside, so you could be a basketball player. This is always the example I give. Um, See, now that I know, now that I've seen behind the picture, now that I see how many awful media questions they have to endure, I'm not sure I'd want to (laughs) be. Now that I see how athletes have to deal with fame, I truly don't know if I would want that. So much of the industry I'm in now is something, as described, that I just bumbled into that I really have never put a lot of time into thinking about what else I could do. Before I decided on sports journalism, I kind of thought, okay, maybe I'll be a computer engineer like my dad. But that was my only connection to it. It wasn't ever something I really enjoyed. So maybe something slightly more creative, even graphically. I spent one semester designing our student newspaper, and I really enjoyed that. And I've never really pursued that. It's not something I really kept up with, and I have no clue if I'd be good or not. But qualifications aside, I think I'd like something graphic design related. I think that'd be fun. Cool. That's a good answer. So yeah, that's all of the questions. I'll just end by saying thanks so much for coming on the podcast. So glad to do this. I enjoyed it as much as you did. That's our show. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Tim Cato, a staff writer for The Athletic based in Dallas, Texas. I'll post links to some of Tim's work and other things we talked about in the podcast description and also on our show page, foreignpod.podbean.com. If you like the show, please subscribe to it in Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts and give it a rating. Beyond that, it would be a huge help if you also write out a positive review saying what you like about the show. It helps get the podcast more attention. Follow or tweet at me on Twitter at at foreignpod. On Facebook, our page is facebook.com slash foreignpod. Above all, if you know someone who might like the podcast, please recommend it to them. The show is produced and edited by me. Our music is a track called Love Chances by Mackay Beats. There's more information on that in the podcast description and on our show page. Please look for the next episode to be posted sometime in early January. I'll post an exact date on social media in coming weeks. Until then, I'm Jake Spring, and this is Foreign Correspondence. Correspondence.